see my Savior's hands. The title says it all. Pastor Will Whedon, author of the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for March, See My Savior's Hands. In pictures and words, we follow Jesus' story by watching his hands, from childhood to his baptism, from his healings and miracles all the way to the cross, from his resurrection to his ascension. We'll see that his hands are always active at work to bring us blessing. Learn more and purchase See My Savior's Hands, a book for children ages 4 through 7 at issuesetc.org. The pastors we spoke to, we, we want to thank all the religious leaders from every community of faith in the country. The chorus of prayers that is coming up from communities of faith around the country is making the difference that it always has in the life of this nation. These are the things that were said of Lutherans during, during plagues in the 15, 16, and 1700s. That they took care of people, that they did not abandon their communities, that they showed the cross of Christ. And COVID is an opportunity to do that again. The problem is that history in schools won't talk about the history of Marxism. And so students are unable to place Marxism and socialism in any historical context. He does have control of absolutely everything, but you just cannot see it. That's okay. You can see him. Australian Lutheran pastors love listening to Issues Etc. while driving through the outback, dodging kangaroos. Here is the title of an op-ed in today's New York Times. It is chock full of information, very useful information, especially if you want to see where the political wind will be blowing in the near future. In God We Divide, the Political Dimensions of Worship have never been greater. Well, I think that's something a lot of people have understood intuitively or perhaps suspected for a long time. There is no doubt that the religious landscape in America has changed and probably permanently. Of course, the press is always concerned about what that means for politics, and that's a valid concern. Greetings and welcome to Issues Etc. Live on this Wednesday afternoon, March the 25th. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Terry Mattingly will be joining us here in the first half hour to talk about this New York Times op-ed on the religious versus the secular divide and its impact on American politics and culture. Ken Cherb joins us after that. We will reflect on the preaching of 20th century Lutheran Hour speaker Oswald Hoffman. Then we're going to take listener questions about COVID-19. Our guest will be Dr. Nicholas Wolgamuth. He's a postdoctoral research associate, infectious diseases at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. Joining us for our weekly feature, media coverage of religion, to talk about this op-ed in the New York Times, Terry Mattingly, senior fellow at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi, author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate, and the book Pop Goes Religion. He's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, welcome back. Glad to be here. This New York Times piece seemed like something of a flashback through the years of our conversations. Am I right? It's an incredible situation on a host of different levels. Um, let me take readers on a, a bit of a um, way back machine trip. Were you ever a Rocky and Bullwinkle fan? Oh, yes. Okay. I literally remember that, you know, strongly and loved the vocabulary of that and the whole bit. But the Wayback Machine was, of course, their time machine. If you're also as old as me, you know the TARDIS from Doctor Who. But anyway, 
if I was going to pick one article more than any other that helped inspire the creation of Get Religion and some of the themes, the early themes in the history of this blog, you know, which is 17 years or so, it's an article that ran in the Atlantic Monthly called Blue Movie. And the subheadline was the morality gap is becoming the key variable in American politics. And the author of this piece was a Columbia Journalism University prof, former political reporter at the Washington Post named Thomas B. Edsall, or Edsall. I do not know where the emphasis is in the second half of that name. Thomas B. Edsall is how I'm going to say it. And Blue Movie opened with a very interesting piece of information. And that was that in 1996, the political theoreticians Dick Morris and Mark Penn working for Bill Clinton were really digging into the polls to try to find out what they could predict and what about voters and voter patterns and what issues were emerging that mattered the most. And they came down to a set of five question that most determined whether or not a voter was going to vote for Bill Clinton or for Bob Dole. And the, the questions were, do you believe homosexuality is morally wrong? Do you ever personally look at pornography? Would you look down on someone who had an affair while married? Do you believe that sex before marriage is morally wrong? And then the fifth question, after all of that barrage on sexual morality issues, the fifth question simply was whether religion was very important in the voter's life. And Edsall wrote at that time, respondents who took the liberal stand on three of the five questions supported Clinton over Dole by a two-to-one ratio. Those who took a liberal stand on four or five questions were not surprisingly, even more likely to support Clinton. The same was true in reverse for those who took a conservative stand on three or more of the questions. He ended by saying, ended that section of the article by saying, according to Morrison Penn, these questions were better vote predictors and better indicators of partisan inclination than anything else except party affiliation or the race of the voter because black voters were overwhelmingly democratic. Now, I came away from that saying, when you, every single one of those questions, of course, when viewed from the perspective of religious doctrine, all divided along the lines of James Davison Hunter's famous book, Culture Wars, which a decade or so earlier had been the book that you know hit me over the head like a two-by-four, as I made the move out of the newsroom and into seminary teaching, and then later into college teaching. These are all, until you get to the fifth question, which basically says, are you intensely religious? All of those questions are moral theology questions in the wake of the sexual revolution. And I was already beginning to see that media coverage of all of those questions was beginning to skew religion coverage in general. 
and that we were really struggling with that and trying to figure out how to do accurate coverage of issues on which the public and the press seem to be so far apart, or large parts of the public. Well, the reason that this article now in the New York Times today, the one called In God We Divide, the political dimensions of worship have never been greater. I read the, you know, I read the article and I saw, I saw the byline, but I didn't put two and two together until I got to the end and thought, wait a minute, this is an article by Thomas B. Edsall, writing now for the New York Times in his weekly column on demographics and culture and trends in American life. Well, he has spotted the exact same thing in another guise. Now he's looking at some of the emerging material, which basically shows, with almost no exceptions, that <laughs> that the word religious now for many people is the same as the word Republican, and that the most powerful force in the Democratic Party now is an incredible tension between the grassroots power of more moderate Democrats, especially African Americans, many of whom are churchgoers, and the more woke, secular Twitter wing of the party, which could best be described as secular or religiously unaffiliated. Now, let's get in the Wayback Machine again. How many times have you and I discussed that fateful day at the Washington Journalism Center in 2007 when the uh, scholar John C. Green drew that long chart on the board and stressed, and he was dealing with early poll data from what would later become the Pew Forum's epic study on the nuns, the religiously unaffiliated. And he basically said, the middle in American life is vanishing. We more and more are drifting into two camps, one of which is essentially the core of it is religiously affiliated, practicing religious believers of various kinds, and at the other side is a growing coalition that some other sociologists had called the anti-evangelical voter. And this, this group is atheist, agnostic, religiously unaffiliated, and a very small percentage primarily of leaders in the old liberal churches. He said, and the middle is vanishing. And on that day, when we were beginning to talk about a young senator from Illinois who was just getting involved in presidential politics by the name of Barack Obama, he said, what I really think we're going to be seeing eventually is that the religiously unaffiliated nuns, atheist agnostic coalition will become the most powerful religious force within the Democratic Party, and that's going to cause incredible tension with the more moderate and African-American side of the party. Now, isn't that a decent summary of almost everything we've talked about for about a decade? And, and that also doesn't that fit well into 
the revenge of Joe Biden in South Carolina and to the shock of the world that the African-Americans managed to save Biden, you know, and defeat the candidate of the secular Twitter elites or the major candidate, which would be Senator Bernie, is an amazing article to ride all the way through, just point after point after point, even quoting Ryan Berg, who now is a participant at Get Religion, contributes a lot of his research to articles that we can use there, and we use his charts off Twitter a lot. In the middle, he shows up quoting things that I think you and I discussed a couple of weeks ago about how every single significant religious group in America is now skewing to the Republican Party as long as you put the word white in front of it. I mean, where even the lay people in the liberal mainline churches are even growing more GOP-prone. And that, once again, the big swing vote is Catholics, while everybody focuses on the world of white evangelicals with obsessive glee, the actual votes that matter the most in the upcoming election will once again probably be Catholics in Florida and the Midwest. One more irony before I shut up for just a moment and breathe. While this was run today in the New York Times, I read it moments after shipping to my editors this week's On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate, which was on the theme of religious tensions in the Democratic Party between moderates, African-American voters, and the nuns slash religiously unaffiliated. It was quite a two-hour brain twister to go through, and here we are. So what next? Terry Mattingly is our guest. We're talking with him about a New York Times op-ed on the religious versus secular divide and its impact on American politics and culture. It really does explain a lot of today's politics. I'm wondering if the genius, the political genius of that then Clinton, Bill Clinton campaign, had any idea where it was leading the party. See my Savior's hands. The title says it all. Pastor Will Whedon, author of The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for March, See My Savior's Hands. In pictures and words, we follow Jesus' story by watching his hands, from childhood to his baptism, from his healings and miracles all the way to the cross, from his resurrection to his ascension. We'll see that his hands are always active at work to bring us blessing. Learn more and purchase See My Savior's Hands, a book for children ages 4 through 7 at issuesetc.org. Concordia University Chicago is a distinctive, comprehensive university of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. We're committed to increasing LCMS faculty and staff members. Hi, this is Dr. Russell Don, president of Concordia University Chicago. If you're a member of our Lutheran Church Missouri Synod congregation, please consider joining our staff. And if you have a terminal degree, please consider joining our faculty. Send us an email at human.resources at cuchicago.edu. Solid. Serious. Substantive. You're listening to Issues Etc. 
LCMS Disaster Response provides guidance and assistance to congregations who seek to proclaim the gospel and show mercy in the wake of disasters. We can bring capacity to your congregation through on-site assessment, volunteer training and congregation preparedness, and through grants direct to your congregation. For more information, follow us on Facebook, keyword LCMS Disaster Response, or visit our website at lcms.org disaster. That's lcms.org disaster. Remember when education was about the fundamental skills of reading, writing, and arithmetic? And about reading great literature and studying history to give our kids a model for what it is to be a good person? Memoria Press's Classical Christian Curriculum offers that very model for your homeschool. Get $5 off your next order by using the coupon code LPR20. For more information, go to memoriapress.com. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. On this Wednesday afternoon, March the 25th, we are talking about a New York Times op-ed on the religious versus secular divide and its impact on American politics and culture with Terry Mattingly, Senior Fellow at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi and author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate. So, Terry, I'm wondering, because if you took the Bill Clinton of the Clinton versus Dole campaign and put him in the fast-forward machine to 2020... He would be a very conservative Democrat. And I'm wondering if when they were doing that kind of analysis of the likely Clinton voters back there, anyone could have had any idea what that kind of non-religious trend would do to Clinton's party eventually. Well, it's even more dramatic if you consider who Bill Clinton and Senator Al Gore were at that time when they became the ticket, when you look at what they stood for. I'll thoroughly admit to people here that going at the start of that campaign, I was a big fan of Bill Clinton and Al Gore. That may surprise a lot of people. But remember what the crucial issue was in their careers at that point that made them – you remember how weird it was that they picked two Southerners? to try to run against the Republicans, and nobody said that made any sense. Well, for most of his time as a senator from Tennessee, Al Gore had a pro-life voting record somewhere in the 80s in terms of percentile of pro-life. And there were moments in his career where he took some pretty strong pro-life stands. Meanwhile, as governor of Arkansas, Bill Clinton had signed a, a statement that basically said life begins at conception. They were both viewed as the last great hope of a more moderate Southern Republican Party. But in both men's lives, I think it would be fair to say, both on the personal and the political level, the whole framing and climate of the sexual revolution ultimately kind of took their toll, and they both evolved and evolved and evolved to the moral and cultural left. Yet one of the reasons why, for all of the scandals, Bill Clinton remained a pretty successful president was the term that everybody liked to call triangulation, where he would 
he would go halfway between what the Democratic left wanted and halfway between what the Republicans wanted, and he kept finding symbolic ways to look more conservative than he actually was. However, as I watched him carefully, because I was a former admirer, I I quickly noticed that the one issue he never compromised on was abortion and other issues related to the sexual revolution and to, I would say, moral theology. And then, of course, Hillary is in the scene there as well, someone whose stance and image on moral and social issues was always way left of her husband, at least in a political sense. So I would argue and could point to some things in the writings of James Davison Hunter and others to say this, that we are still basically in a post-Roe v. Wade world. And if you, if you take the view of Richard John Newhouse and a whole bunch of other people who argue that abortion is ultimately the sacrament of secular culture, then it makes sense that we're seeing what we're seeing. But now there's nobody triangulating. Even Joe Biden on cultural and moral issues has veered way to the left of his former moderate Democrat Catholic stance. That's got to be a major force, even in this next campaign, even when you're dealing with someone as compromised and inconsistent as Donald Trump. So that chart on the board with John C. Green, the extremes are getting further and further apart, and the middle has vanished. I can't think of anything that describes our politics right now better than that. And this article at the New York Times today, which echoes the one he wrote in 2003 that inspired me to create Get Religion, basically argues that religion is at the heart of that. Worshiping is at the heart of that. Devout, practiced religion is at the heart of that. So if the middle's gone— and the political calculus now, well, if you read The Atlantic, the, the political calculus is it doesn't really matter what Joe Biden does. He just has to stay alive until. Well, and November. also hope that he doesn't get physically sick and they push through Governor Cuomo as an emergency candidate. If that's the calculus and everyone said Joe Biden is going to reinvigorate and recapture the Democratic moderates. Are they staring at a big empty hole there since moderates are very rare indeed? Well, I mean, except that they can't win the presidency without the African-American vote being alive and enthused. And to some degree, they can't win the presidency without a more moderate old Catholic labor vote across the industrial and post-industrial Midwest. So, the collision that John C. Green saw coming between the atheist, agnostic, nun, liberal side of the party, the woke side, the Twitter side, we would say, and the more moderate grassroots African-American, that tension will only grow if Biden in any way salutes the middle or the right, what right exists, the middle of the party. Uh, the minute he does that, what happens to the, the powerful, wealthy, activist, young, Bernie bros side of the party? 
This is really going to be an interesting drama. And this article today at the Times really points out this is all essentially about religion. Talk, if you would, about race in the Southern Baptist Convention and the Assemblies of God and what it has to do with the religious and secular divide. Well, I bring that up because as a reporter, I'm always trying to figure out what's the next thing that we see that emerges out of some of these things. While we keep talking about white evangelicals and white evangelicals and white this and white that, it's interesting to note that at the level of the pews, the most racially diverse denominations in American life are, first of all, the Catholics. Second, the Assemblies of God, because of the long history of racial uh, mixing and unity and fellowship among Pentecostals and Charismatics in the Pentecostal world, which was, after all, a movement that began as a thoroughly multiracial phenomena in American life. And then, surprisingly, the Southern Baptist Convention. One of the dramas we're seeing right now in the Southern Baptist Convention is being caused by the rapid growth of the African-American and Latino Southern Baptists as a force that their denomination can't ignore. A lot of ink has been spilled accurately over the slight decline in membership in the Southern Baptist Convention in the last decade or so, slight compared to the demographic collapse of liberal mainland Protestantism for the most part. Well, the Southern Baptists would be in really bad trouble without the growth of African-American Southern Baptist churches. Well, as you could imagine, if you've got lots of Southern Baptists of the old political school, kind of the old religious right, if they're all gung-ho Trump, how does that fare with the side of the Southern Baptist Convention that wants to reach out and embrace racial diversity and the African-American churches and the Latino churches, which are all very morally and doctrinally conservative, but they've got other pots on boiling on other issues in addition to kind of what, oh, the First Baptist Dallas as Southern Baptist Convention wants, or the Jerry Falwell Jr. Southern Baptist Convention. So right now, keep your eye on Latino and African-American evangelicals, because to some degree, they're going to be causing interesting tension for the establishment in the world of evangelical, tension that I think is very helpful and defining and in the long run will be positive, watch that tension, while at the same time, those are the very same African-American and Latino intensely evangelical believers that are going to be saying, what the heck is going on with the Democratic Party? We can't even get anything through the House that says fourth trimester abortion is immoral. And now they want to do away with the Hyde, you know, Act to fund abortion. And if the Equality Act, as several people have noted in recent months, if the Equality Act goes through and is signed by President Biden or President Cuomo, if that gets signed and it really begins to have a strong effect on religious nonprofits, 
How many of the religious nonprofits in American life that help the poor and help urban areas, how many of them are based in black and Latino and Asian evangelical churches? I don't know a percentage, but it's a lot. And those folks are probably not going to love same-sex showers and bathrooms and a host of other things. So this article today in the New York Times simply flies the flag. You can't get religion, morality, and culture out of the tensions in American life. And I would argue the Democratic Party is not out of the woods yet in terms of dealing with those tensions inside its own core constituencies that they simply have to have at the ballot box in order to win. How can New York Times beat reporters benefit from reading this very op-ed in their own newspaper? Oh, that is a great question. The main thing the article does that I think is positive is pointing out that you can try to define this in terms of education, social class, and a bunch of other things that reporters tend to take seriously. But it is better explained in terms of religion and worship. I mean, the, the theme that runs through a lot of political reporting in American life that I see over and over is that all that religion stuff, it's actually just politics. Someone says they believe the following about LGBTQ issues and the First Amendment, but we know that it's really just they hate gays and it's a political position. It has nothing to do with them trying to defend a Christian anthropology and doctrines that are 2,000 years old. We know that they just love Trump and it's just politics. Well, that's not what this article is saying today. And if they read it, they would see at some point we're going to have to deal with this division as an important issue that religion is at the heart of it. And you can't get religion. And even right down to the percentage of times that people go to worship services, it turns out those are among the strongest factors that we're now seeing predicting where people come down in a political divide. And I would stress, as I have all along, a lot of those religious and cultural conservatives are not at all happy with Donald Trump. And they wish they had someone else to vote for. As the Christianity Today survey showed about a year ago, oh, they wanted someone else to vote for. But at the moment, who is the Democratic Party giving them to vote for? What are their other options? especially if you want to allow the next person who's elected to select the replacement for Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. With about 30 seconds, does that translate into, combine it with coronavirus, record poor showing at the polls in November? Uh, uh, low turnout. Hey, hey, I have no clue what's going to happen in the next six months. We've got candidates over the age of 70. We've got Prince Charles with coronavirus. I have no idea what's going to happen if Joe Biden ever comes out of his TV studio in his basement and interacts with people again. 
I don't know how long Trump is going to get away with holding his rallies at 6 p.m. on the evening news. Politically, I have no clue, but I guarantee you religion is going to be a strong part of it. Terry Mattingly is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi, author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion. He is founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, thank you very much. Glad to be here, I guess. Dr. Ken Sherb will join us on the other side of the break. He would like to reflect a bit, especially in this time of global panic sometimes, on the preaching of a 20th century man named Oswald Hoffman, who was for more than three decades the Lutheran Hour speaker. Stay tuned. Did you know that we send out an email each week that details upcoming show topics? It's available for you to include in your weekly church bulletin. Just click the Issues Etc. Journal logo at our homepage, issuesetc.org, and sign up to receive the church bulletin blurb. It's an easy way to invite your fellow parishioners to listen to Issues Etc. Issuesetc.org. Look for the Issues Etc. Journal logo and register to receive a weekly bulletin paragraph from Issues Etc. This week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, we're journeying on in Hebrews. Jesus, source of eternal salvation, warning against falling away. A sure and steadfast anchor, Melchizedek, and an indestructible life. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, for The Word of the Lord Endures Forever. Your daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study on demand at thewordendures.org, and on the Lutheran Public Radio app. Did you know that Luther Academy has been providing continuing education for confessional Lutheran pastors and laypeople worldwide for more than 20 years? Luther Academy publishes Logia, the Confessional Lutheran Dogmatic Series, and Luther Digest. Find out more about Luther Academy and sign up to receive their free email newsletter at lutheracademy.com. LutherAcademy.com and like them on Facebook, facebook.com slash LutherAcademy. After Jesus was baptized, the Holy Spirit drove him into the wilderness, and there he fasted for 40 days, and Satan came and tempted him. And whereas we have fallen to temptation time and again, Jesus did not. Read the March issue of the Luther Witness to learn all about fasting and temptation. Read about how God called his people to return to him with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. And learn about how Jesus gives us his perfect obedience in place of our sin. Visit cph.org witness to subscribe today. The Lutheran Witness, interpreting the contemporary world from a Lutheran perspective. cph.org witness. We love our on-demand listeners. You're listening to Issues Etc., Thanks to the following congregations for standing with us by becoming an Issues Etc. Congregational Sponsor. Calvary Lutheran, Baltimore, Maryland. First Bethlehem Lutheran, Chicago, Illinois. Holy Cross Lutheran, Carlisle, Iowa. Lutheran Church of Our Savior, Cupertino, California. Mount Zion Lutheran, Greenfield, Wisconsin. Prince of Peace Lutheran, St. Louis, Missouri. St. Jacoby Lutheran, Shawano, Wisconsin. St. Paul Lutheran, Bridgeport, Nebraska. Trinity Lutheran, Auburn, Nebraska, and Zion Lutheran, Dexter, Iowa. Find out how your confessional Lutheran church can support this worldwide outreach by including Issues Etc. in your mission or advertising budget. Just go to issuesetc.org, click Support, Donate, 
and print the one-page flyer. When your congregation becomes an Issues Etc. sponsor, we'll publicize your church on the radio, at our website, and in the Issues Etc. journal.